Well, open, if you would, to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 14 today. And um, today we are going to look at and read the first war story in the Bible. And as we look at that, uh, what I want to tell you about war stories in the Bible is that they tell us a lot about our lives today uh, because our heroes of the Old Testament fought physical battles with their swords. Uh, We today fight different sorts of battles with a sword that we have as well. Uh, The book of Ephesians says to us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but is against the spiritual powers of darkness in the world. And that book goes on to tell us to be armed for the fight and ready for the fight. And one of those weapons is a sword, but it's a new sword. It's a sword of the spirit, which is the very word of God. Uh, So we watch our heroes pick up swords And by those swords, they bring about God's purposes in the world. And there we find an analogy. There we find one of the best pictures of the spiritual warfare that we engage in every day as we pick up our swords and try to do our part bringing about God's purposes in the world. Uh, That means that when you are in the office talking about Jesus with your coworker and trying to bring the gospel to your coworker, you are engaging in spiritual battle in that moment and you need to be armed with a sword. And one of the best pictures you have of that battle comes from the war stories in the Old Testament. That means also at the same time that in the darkest night of your life, when you are telling yourself over and over again that God is still real and he still loves you and he has not abandoned you, you are fighting spiritual battles and you have to be armed with your sword to survive. Here's what's going on there behind the scenes, if none of that makes sense. Uh, The Bible teaches us that there is a God in heaven. He's Lord of all. Jesus Christ is his son. And this God has a great enemy as well, called at times Satan in the Bible, or called the devil, or sometimes pictured as a snake or as a dragon. And this great enemy of God has a whole army and a whole group of forces that he uses. His number one goal is to thwart God's purposes. He wants to steal glory away from God, prevent God. God's purposes from happening in the world. And if that purpose right now is the Great Commission that we go out and make all disciples, his number one goal is to stop that from happening. So when we obey the Great Commission, when we take the gospel to our friends and our loved ones, we're engaging in a fight and there is an enemy who is against us. Now, I think if we're honest, sometimes we're sharing the gospel with someone, we're proclaiming the gospel, bringing it to someone who has never heard it before, and sometimes you can get to where you're saying to yourself, this person is so hard-hearted, uh, this, person, this person does not want to hear what I'm saying. Or maybe you haven't even brought the gospel to the person yet, but you're just certain they're, they're uninterested, right? Like, they don't want to hear this Jesus stuff. And it can be discouraging, right? And what Satan wants to do is tempt us into cowardice, tempt us away from engaging in the battle. So we look at reality and we say, these people don't want to hear our message. What's the point of even saying it? And the question I want to ask you is in moments like that when you're discouraged in the spiritual fight, where can you find courage? Or what about in moments of great suffering in your life when you are very discouraged because of how much you are suffering? Where can you find courage to keep up the fight? The story we're going to look at today gives a clear example to that. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus, I pray that it will be a source of true courage and victory for you, that you can engage in the fight with valor. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, what I pray it does for you is points you to a source of courage that you could have that is freely available to you if you would receive the promises of God, which include perhaps the greatest among them, the promise of forgiveness, freely offered, uh, substituted by the shed blood of Jesus, covering for your sins so that you can be forgiven before God. If you would trust in him, that promise and so many other are freely available to you, not the least of them, the source of courage that we will uncover today. Let's look together at Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to read the oldest war story in the Bible. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king in Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedileomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Birsha, king of Gomorrah, and Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedileomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedileomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Asheriath Carnium, and Zuzim and Ham, and Emim and Shaveth Keriathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back. And they came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out. And they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim. Against Kedileomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled into the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the food supply, and they departed. They also took Lot. Abram's nephew and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and these were his allies with Abram. When Abram heard this, that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born of his house, 318 who went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. When he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and all the women and all the people. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of, Sadom, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And now he was priest of the most high God. He blessed him and said to him, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me, but take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, 
possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. The word of the Lord. Amen. So we have been walking slowly through the book of Genesis. If you have not been with us lately, we're in the part where we're talking about one of the fathers of the faith right now named Abram, but his name will soon be Abraham, and you may have heard of him before, the father of the Jewish nation. Uh, We're going through his life, and basically what has happened is he has received some very great promises from God. He is childless. He is advanced in years and beyond the years when he would expect to have a child, but the Lord has promised him that he will have many descendants. His descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. And what's more, uh, those descendants will be given a very certain land that he has seen and he is living in now, and they will become a nation in that land. And then finally, the Lord has promised him that anyone that blesses him, the Lord will bless, and anyone that curses him, the Lord will curse. And essentially, we've been reading a few stories now, and all of these stories have the same big question over them. And that question is, is God really going to fulfill these promises, and does Abram really trust him to do that? And you get to see Abram's trust in those promises play out, or his lack of trust in those promises play out in what he does. And that's the very same thing that is happening here. So those are the promises that are overarching. His descendants will be a great nation. Those that bless him, the Lord will bless. Those that curse him, the Lord will curse. Uh, And this first section of this story lays out the details of a great battle that happened in that day in so much detail that you might wonder why they're there. I mean, as you read through these and stumble over these names, it's easy to think, why did this author put all of these details in here? Well, there is a point to it all. Uh, The way things worked back then, uh, this is before the age of nations and empires and great things like that. Uh, If you were a king in those days, you were king over a city. Uh, And they're just getting to the point where the cities are large enough that they're in contact with each other. And you might think that what they would do is, you know, I've got my city and you've got your city over there and my city is bigger and stronger than yours, so I'll just go conquer your city and then I have two cities, right? That would make sense, but it actually didn't work that way because they figured out Well, if I do that, then half of my soldiers die in the battle, and now I have two cities I have to defend with half an army. That's not going to work out very well. So instead, they would take their massive force over and march over to the city and intimidate them really good and say, hey guys, y'all want a good fight? And the city would be like, no, 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 we don't want to fight. And they'd say, okay, well, no problem. Just put your king in subjection to our king. He can pay us tribute. He can pay our king in gold and spices and whatever wonderful riches you have, and you can be in subjection to us. Your king still gets to rule, but if we got to go out to war, you're going to come and you're going to help us fight. Uh, And not only will we not destroy you, but we'll actually protect you. We'll be in an alliance together. And so they would call it sovereign kings and petty kings. You'd have a petty king underneath a sovereign king. And the sovereign king would be receiving great tributes. I mean, they would tax these people through the nose, make them pay more than they ever could, so that the big king got to amass all the good stuff for himself, and all those poor little cities just had to live in subjection to them. Uh, Well, as you might imagine, after a while, the littler cities got tired of that, and so they would rebel against the sovereign king. 
and usually it would not go very well for the small city. Uh, and that's what happens here. So there is this one king named Keterleomer, and he evidently is a great king. Now, we don't hear about him anywhere else in history. There's no other historical record of this guy. He would not even be known if it weren't for this story. But he was the big guy of the day. And he was so great, he had at least eight other kingdoms in subjection to him. So he's not doing like the two-city thing. He's got a nine-city kingdom. Uh, and for 12 years, they serve him. But in the 13th year, they get tired of giving him all their gold and all their good stuff and having to do whatever he says. And so five of these cities rebel against him. And that leads us to where we are here. So when you're reading verses one through four and stumbling over all those names, those are all nine of the kings that are in this alliance together. I'll read it to you. It came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, so that's two right there, Kederleomer, king of Elam, that's the big guy, that's three, Tidal, king of Goyim, that's four, uh, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And they came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketelaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So that's what's going on there. They're all under subjection to that king. Uh, about half of them rebel. Five of them rebel and say, we're not going to be in your little alliance anymore. We've had enough of that. And so the big bad kingdom decides, okay, well, we got to enforce our treaties. And so they, they bring their forces, Keterleomer's big army, the smaller army of the other three cities that are still with him, and they go on march and they're going to go take down these guys who won't serve them anymore. Uh, along the way, they take down six other kingdoms because there's other kingdoms in the way and so they just mow over them like a locust plague or like a hurricane that's what's happening in verses five through seven i'll read that to you in the 14th year of Keterleomer and the kings that were with him they came and they defeated first the Rephaim of ashiriath Carnium, then second the Zuzim in Ham then third the Emim in Sheva Keriotham and then the Horites in Mount Seir, as far as El Param, which is by the wilderness. I think I'm at four now. Then they turned back and they came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered all of the country of the last two, the Amalekites and also the Amorites, that's six, who lived in Hazazon Tamar. So they just mowed over six kingdoms on their way. And they're not even phased, like just marching on like a storm that is not phased by the condo that it just mowed down. So if you're one of the five kingdoms that rebelled and you're up in your high spot kind of trying to watch what's going on here to see if the bad guys are really going to come and get you and you see that happening along the way, just kingdom after kingdom falling, you're thinking to yourself, ooh, right, this isn't going to go very well. And so in the next paragraph, they have this last ditch effort. They're like, okay, we can't let them get all the way to the cities and take our livestock and our wives and our children and all of our stuff. Like, we can't let them do that. Let's go meet them on the battlefield. Let's go on the offensive. We'll go into this valley together. And when they come, we'll, we'll try to ambush them there. We'll try to get them there. And so that's what's happening in verses 8 and 9. Uh, it says, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim. 
against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. So here they are in this valley and they're gonna have the final showdown, right? The bad guys are there. They're gonna see if they can maybe mount up some kind of defense. And in this valley, there are all these tar pits, right? All this like oil and tar and stuff from the deposits below comes up kind of through the desert and salt and gets nasty. And uh, it's unclear exactly what happens, but either they see how big the army is and they flee, or maybe they actually start fighting and, you know, in the battle they lose very much, but they wind up fleeing one way or another. Some of the people either fall into the tar pits or they hide themselves into the tar pits, which would be pretty clever, and everyone else just flees. So the battle's just over like that. This big army has now defeated five armies at the same time after going through six, one at a time. And so you got to look at it and you're wondering like, wow, this is a massive Army. Now that's what's happening in verses 10 and 11. It says, uh, Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them, or maybe lowered themselves into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country, and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply, and they departed. So that big army just, no one's left in the cities now, right? No one's defending it because everybody has fled. So they just go through the cities, take all the stuff, take all the people, take their wives, take their kids, everything. Maybe they destroy the cities, maybe they don't, but they at least have taken all of the stuff. So short version is there's this foreign army that is so big they have no trouble wiping out six armies on the way to their battle with five other armies and they seem to don't even lose a man. They are so powerful. Uh, now, the thing is, it could have just said something like, now there was a great battle and foreign kings led by Kedorlaomer defeated all the kings in the area neighboring where Abram settled. Like if they had said that, you'd get all this, right? And so you got to wonder, like, why all that detail? Why, why all these names that are so hard to pronounce? What, like, why is all of that in there? Well, there's a point, and you're probably sensing it, although you may not realize that it's the point. The point is, this army is big and scary. And when you walk through all that, you're going to say to yourself, wow, that is, that is a massive army. I do not want to mess with that. So this Keterleomer guy, we have a hard time saying his name. I have a hard time saying his name. They would have had a hard time saying his name without shuddering in fear because he's the scariest person alive right then, right? If he comes by, your city is going down. So they just kind of feel helpless. Like uh, when I was growing up in Florida, sometimes in hurricane season, a hurricane would come and we would just all sit there around the Weather Channel and watch them like get the newest data and track where it was gonna go uh, because there was nothing you could do. I mean, you could, you could batten down the hatches and stuff but you're not going to stop the storm from coming. It's going to come and it's going to wreak destruction and you're just sitting there watching and wondering, is it going to come here or is it going to go there? Is it going to destroy our town or is it going to destroy the next town over? And that's pretty much how these guys have to look at forces like that. Are they going to come through and mow through our city or are they going to go through the neighboring city? And in Abram's case, they went through the neighboring city. They went around the other side of the Salt Sea and Abram was left untouched. All of this matters for Abram because of verse 12. 
Verse 12 is the reason we are reading about this story and it wasn't just lost in history. Verse 12 says, they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Now we've got a story, right? Now these guys didn't just come through and beat up on a neighboring city, they took Abram's nephew. So the point so far then is that a big scary army has come and taken Lot and we're meant to be impressed with how big that army is, how scary they are, how destructive they are. All of that is build up so that we will see how crazy what happens next is. Let's read verses 13 and 14. It says, then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in the house, 318, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now when I'm growing up and we're watching those hurricanes coming, if they wind up coming our way, we leave, and if they wind up going somewhere else, we all breathe a sigh of relief, right? The engine of destruction goes by Abram and doesn't come his way. It goes the other way, right? And Abram goes and flies into the eye of the storm. He does the exact opposite thing that any of us would think to do. And the key detail here is 318. He does this with 318 men who evidently are trained for battle, but the rest of the day, they're probably shepherds. They're probably keeping livestock. You know, they're, they're turning things into weapons and going to, f- to fight. This is like five kids with slingshots taking on the Metro PD like it just doesn't make sense why would he do that it's it's like David going after Goliath you know it's just crazy and so the story is told in a way to make you say wow that is a bold move that's why all those details of the kingdoms are in there that's why the number 318 men is in there and so we're left asking ourselves how on earth did Abram have the courage and even the instinct to do something that was so crazy. And the answer comes in the promises that God had already made to him. God had said, I will make of you a great nation. So Abram knows that from him is going to come not just a nation that's bigger than all these cities today, but a great nation. A nation so great that it will be a blessing to every nation on earth. So he knows the way history is going to fall, he already knows it's going to fall in his favor. God had promised him, the one who blesses you, I will bless, and the one who curses you, I will curse. So if he is meeting enemies in battle, He knows those enemies are going to have a bad time and he will be blessed in battle. Now with those kinds of promises behind you, it's not so crazy to go out with 318 men and take on the biggest superpower of the day. If you know that God's gonna bless you 
and you know that God's going to curse them, and then you know that you're going to become a great nation when this thing is all over, you can go and rescue your nephew from scary people like that. So the point is, God's promises were for Abram a source of boldness and courage in battle. Those promises were the difference maker. Plenty of people had their relatives taken that day, but they hadn't received great promises like that from God, so they didn't have the boldness to go after the army the way that he did. That matters when you're fighting spiritual battles. God's promises to you make all of the difference. So we've talked a little bit about evangelism so far, about the act of bringing the gospel to the people that we love. Uh, And one thing I kind of hinted at before is that I I think that probably almost all of us are crippled in our ability to share the gospel with people because we feel like everyone we know is either already a Christian or completely opposed to the gospel or not at all interested in the gospel. So, you know, you're you're kind of thinking, man, I'd love to share the gospel with somebody, but this person's already a Christian, so maybe we'll encourage each other. This person will hate me if I talk. They're definitely not gonna listen. And this person thinks it's boring and is not interested in it. And so it's like, who who is out there that I can share the gospel with, right? Like, it's discouraging. And, And you can find courage for battles like that in the same place that Abram found courage for his battles, in the promises of God. That can give you the courage to go and share the gospel with somebody that you're convinced is completely uninterested in it. Why would you do that? Because of his promises. Let's look at uh, the Great Commission together. It's in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Uh, This is like in the great spiritual war, this is our mission now. This is what we are here to do. Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So our job is to take the gospel to all the nations, to make more disciples of Jesus, train them in his ways, and then we wind up sending them out as well, although that's in another text. Uh, But then it comes with a promise, and here's the promise. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So he gives us this great mission, right? And it's a scary mission. I mean, to bring the gospel to people that you know is frightening and you can lose a lot doing it. Where can you find courage and confidence to go out and do it anyway? It's in that promise right there. He says, I am with you always even to the end of the age. How can you have courage to initiate gospel conversations with people who are opposed to it or people who aren't interested because Jesus promises to be there with you? So let's say that you're going to the doctor this week, you have an appointment, and you've seen this doctor a few times, you have a decent relationship, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, one way that I think we could gain ground in this great spiritual war is if I invited my doctor to church, right? I'll bring an invite card with me, I'll invite my doctor to church. Uh, You get there, 
And the truth becomes kind of evident that your doctor is supposed to see like 45 patients a day or some ridiculous number of patients, right? Doesn't have time to make small talk with you. Uh, it gets a grand total of like 36 seconds that they get to spend like in the room, giving you the diagnosis, looking at the charts, boom, boom, boom. This is all I got. Do you have any questions? I've got to go because they got to go on to the next person. And you're realizing to yourself, this doctor is not interested in this great church that I'm a part of. Like doctors want to get on to the next patient. Uh, and in that moment, you're going to be tempted toward, basically toward cowardice, right? Toward just saying, you know what? Not even worth bringing up. Just let the doctor walk out of the room. Forget it, right? Well, what if Jesus is with you, helping you carry out the mission? There, you have a source of courage. There, in those kind of moments when you're like, what's the use of, of proclaiming the gospel right now, his presence with you, helping you carry out the mission, is all the courage that you need. That's the same sort of promise that can get Abram to rise up and go with 318 men after a superpower. Only for you, it's spiritual battles like that. It's bringing the gospel to people that you love. What about what about in a dark season of suffering? Do God's promises give you courage in dark seasons of suffering? Yes, they, they definitely do. Uh, let me read one of his promises to you from Psalm 34, 17. He says, The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? The Lord will deliver the righteous out of all of their troubles. Now, this isn't like an instant, like, you know, 30-second Easy Mac kind of promise, put it in the microwave and it's done. Like, he's not going to come today necessarily and deliver you out of your promises. But, and there are actually a whole lot of Psalms where the psalmist is saying, like, how long, when will you deliver me out of this promise? But the promise remains, he will come and he will deliver us from whatever we are suffering. And what's more, he says that in that day, we will look back and we will be glad for the sufferings that we went through. That he's going to work all things together for our goods so that we will be sitting among so much reward that we'll look back and say, I'm so glad I suffered that particular thing because the Lord worked it to my good. Here's where he says that. He says in Romans 8, 28, he says, and we know that, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Can you imagine that one day after God delivers you in eternity, you will look back and be glad for the problems you have right now. We'll look back and be glad for the suffering. Some of you know what it's like to go through something hard and look back years later and say, you know what, now it's for the best that I went through that, though it was hard. We will one day say that about every problem we have ever had as God works it for our good. Now, when you're in the darkest night of your life, can promises like that give you courage to keep fighting? Absolutely they can, the same way that they rose Abram up out of that tent and sent him into battle. So let me just give like one down-to-earth example here. Um, and th there are so many things, people are going through all sorts of problems, and we just pick one, and then maybe that would, that would kind of filter out to the others as well. Let's say that um, you're one of the many people today who is suffering from depression, and you're like in the thick of it, like it's a bad spell of it 
right now. Now, on one hand, depression is not just a spiritual problem. It's physical and spiritual and very mysterious, and we don't fully understand it. Uh, so it's not a simple, like, come to church and it'll go away kind of thing. Like, that's not how that works. So it's not just a spiritual problem, but it can create spiritual battles in your life because it can tempt you to all sorts of things. It can tempt you to deny that God really cares for you because a whole lot of times it just doesn't feel like he really cares about you. It can tempt you into isolation and the many sins that come with isolation. It can create spiritual battles, even if it's not primarily a spiritual issue itself. When you are at the lowest point of that, you are probably going to feel like, what is the use of opening up my Bible for the thousandth time and recalling that scripture I have memorized for the hundredth time and continuing this fight like you just want to give up that fight where are you going to find courage to keep on in the fight for your own soul where are you going to find that there is no better place than the promises of God you look at Psalm 34 and it says he will deliver me this is gonna end one day you look at Romans 8 28 and you say I know God will work this for my good because he has promised and he keeps all of his promises. That will get you fighting in the darkest nights of your life. That's what courage does for us. So the source of courage you have in battle is God's promises. It's that simple. It's that complicated and that simple. But that's not all. They are also a source of victory in battle. Yes, they're a source of courage but they're a source of victory as well. Let's pick up with Abram. Let's see what he does. Verse, four, uh, verse 15 says, he divided his forces against them by night. This is Abram. He and his servants. And he defeated them. And he pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. In other words, which is a very, very long way. He chased him forever. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with their possessions and also the women and the people. Abram didn't just go and fight. He beat a superpower with 318 men. How do you do that? There's only one way you do that the promises of God behind you. That doesn't just happen in history. And so what happens next confirms for us that it was indeed God who was with him. Just in case we didn't like catch that through the story and we're not blown away by it. And maybe we're asking, wait, how did he do that? Well, the rest of the story confirms for us. This guy uh, Melchizedek appears and confirms it. Here's what happens. It says, then after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him and the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, King of, Caleb, King of Salem brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the most high God. He blessed him. <clears throat> and here's the blessing that confirms it. He says, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, here it is, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this priest, this mysterious priest king just shows up out of nowhere and confirms God most high is the one who delivered your enemies into your hand. He has done as he has promised. He keeps his promise. He's the one who did it. 
Then Abram interacts with the king of Sodom in a way that sends the same message because the king of Sodom tries to get in on this whole thing. And Abram basically says, no, 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 no. It was the Lord who did this. So here's what happens there. Uh, It says he gave him a tenth of all. That's he gave to Melchizedek a a tithe. Uh, And it says, then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. So he's offering him like you can have all the spoil. Abram, you can keep it all. Just just give me my people back. Uh, And Abram says to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. So, King of Sodom basically says, hey, I, I want to I get in on this whole thing. Let me, give, let me bless you so that I'll be blessed. This will be awesome. And Abram just says, no, like that's not how this is going to work because it is the Lord who has made me great. It is him who does it. He gets the glory. He gets the power. You don't get in on that. Now, we know from past stories that Sodom is a very wicked place and the king of Sodom is a very wicked king. So we already know that about him. That has something to do with it. So maybe like the best analogy for this would be like, um, you know, we, we're still in debt a bit on our uh, new building that we built a number of years ago. What if, uh, what if a mobster rose up in Indy and became very powerful, ran a huge drug-like uh, empire, and uh, in order to get like some PR for himself, he called us and said, hey guys, I'd really like to pay off your building for you. Um, and we're going to think about that and we're going to say, no, not a chance. Like we're not taking that money. Not because his money is worse than other people's money. It all spends the same, right? The bank will take anybody's money. No, the reason we wouldn't do that is because as soon as that happens, then it's all in the papers. Great mob boss. Look what a great guy he is. He's paying off this church's debt. He'll get all kinds of glory. He'll look like such a great guy. And then whenever he wants to call and ask for a favor, well, then he gets to call us and we get to do favors for him. And so we're going to say, no, like, you're not the puppet master here. You're not the one who can call us and ask us to do stuff. We submit to somebody else. And you're not the one who gets the glory when our building gets paid off. It's the Lord who gets that glory. When our building gets paid off, we're not taking a dime from you, right? Like, we don't want your money. That's basically what Abraham is doing here. He's saying, look, no, I don't want your money because I don't want you to have the power that comes along with that. I don't want you to have the glory that comes along with that all of it goes to the Lord because he has made me promises and he has kept them in the same way so the point there when all that is that his victory came from the Lord and from the Lord's promises that's that's what we're grasping on to there Uh, So in the same way, in your battles, in the war that you are fighting, uh, yes, your courage comes from God's promises, but your victory also comes from God's promises. So let's take that back to the doctor's office then. You're there, you're, you're trying to invite your doctor to the doctor's office, and you're confident Jesus is here, and he is helping me carry out this mission. Now, this does not mean that every time you invite someone to church or bring the gospel to them, it will go swimmingly well. Uh, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, you might bust out that invite card, give it to your doctor, and they don't care at all about it, and they just make fun of you to the nurse in the hallway. It could happen that way. What it does mean is that Jesus is intent on making for himself a people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And that includes Greenwood, Indiana. He's making for himself a people here. And so what that means practically 
is if you can invite enough doctors to church, eventually one will say yes. Or if you can bring the gospel to your friend and your coworker and your doctor and your parents and your sister and like all these people, eventually the gospel will make it to somebody because he's intent on expanding his kingdom and growing his kingdom. And if you bring the gospel to 200 people and only one of them comes to Christ, that is a victory. That is a gaining of ground because we went from zero out of 200 to one out of 200. We can't lose ground in this battle. We can only gain. And so that victory is going to come from the Lord. So it means truly that even in that moment with you and the doctor there in the office, like there is a real chance that the Lord will work a miracle right there in your doctor's heart and make that happen. And if not today, then maybe some other day. If not that doctor, maybe somebody else. But if you're consistent in it and you keep fighting, you will find victories in those battles. What about the other situation I talked about, the person suffering depression? Uh, Your hope also rests in God's promises for eternity, that one day he will deliver you. Now, you may go the rest of your life not understanding what's going on inside of you. That happens, and we don't understand things like that. But one day, he will come, and he will deliver you. Now, if you're not suffering that, what problem are you suffering from? Apply it just the same. It may not go away tomorrow. Uh, You may not ever even understand what's going on in your body or in your life or anything like that, but he will come, Christian, and he will deliver you. And so that's what we're clinging on to today. His promises in our lives give us hope. They give us courage to fight when the odds are so stacked against us. And in the end, they will one day bring victory. Uh, There's more in this text. I hope to tell you in future weeks about this mysterious Melchizedek guy who's actually very important. Uh, the tithe that Abram gives to him. There's so much meaning for us there. We'll save those for future weeks. For now, I just want to point out one little detail to take us into the Lord's Supper. Uh, This is the first time in the Bible that bread and wine are set out. And how fitting that we would come to that uh, in the very moment where we have the bread and the cup.